As I say, I feel quite um, nervous about this. And it's because this is an important subject. And I, because I, I want, what I want to do is I want to try and avoid um, cliché and say to you the things that have echoes in my heart and I suspect probably in some of yours but also to avoid being too depressing because the silence of God is not easy in any way. So we're using this book, this, this book by Pete Gregg, God on, God on Mute, and uh, the whole um, thing revolves around the idea of unanswered prayer, and one of the ways in which he structures his book is around um, the days of, the, of Holy Week, and his first section is on Monday, Thursday, then Good Friday, and where we are now is... Holy Saturday in terms of the silence of God and next week Stephen's going to be preaching and he's going to um, bring that to full circle and, and think about Easter Sunday and I'm well aware of the irony <laughs> even the comedy actually of speaking about the silence of God and as part of our service, I'm planning that we will have a little bit of time to experience silence. Because I think speaking about the silence of God can only take us so far into this. But let me start with this. The Bible, of course, by the way, there's, I've put a little bit of a, um, an outline on the... Um, the update there, so if it's helpful to you to know what the kind of the uh, paragraph headings are, it's there. It's the kind of thing that I would have put on PowerPoint if uh, we'd had the use of that, but it's there for you if it's helpful to you. The Bible's full of a God who speaks from beginning to end. The, the, it starts in Genesis, of course, with uh, God speaking the universe into existence, and at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, particularly in the penultimate chapter, which is Revelation 19, there's a, a huge uh, multitude of people, and what they're doing is they're shouting out, Hallelujah! And right the way through, time after time after time after time, God speaks. God speaks through Moses, speaks through David, speaks through the prophets, speaks above all in Jesus. And Jesus is referred to, as you well know, in the scriptures as the Word made flesh. God speaking in the life of his Son. God speaks. And all of that feeds my sense of inadequacy and even failure. Because if God speaks so regularly and so frequently, why doesn't he speak to me like that? Now some of you will want to say, God does, God does, God does speak to you, God does. And uh, that's fine, but I, I want to hold on to that question 
for a little while. Because if, if silence teaches us anything, it's this, that we are sometimes too quick to provide answers, to jump in to the silence. And the danger of that is that if, if we jump in too quickly, the answers can sometimes come across as facile and trite, as inauthentic, actually, and unreal. Not always, but they can sometimes have that effect. And if I'm honest with myself, then I would have to say, most often, perhaps always, I don't know if my prayers are answered or not. How do I know? Well, sometimes the things I pray for happen, and sometimes they don't. I don't think I'm alone in that, I guess not. So when, when my prayers are answered, would that have happened anyway? And when they're not answered, what do you do? You, do you say, well, okay, God, up to you. I don't know. And what about, you know, the big, big, big prayers? Prayers for world peace. Prayers for justice. Prayers for an end to violence. Do they get answered? I don't know. How can I tell? And so, in terms of this silence of God, the first one of those headings down there is about enduring the silence. And there's an awkwardness, isn't there, in enduring silence. The awkwardness is there because we want God to speak, we expect God to speak, and nothing happens. And sometimes, if we're honest, things get worse. They don't get better. We call out and there's no response. Just silence. And that is the awkwardness of a silence in which there is no response. And one of the things that helps me in terms of enduring that silence is to have a toleration of ambiguity. <laughs> to live with a maybe, a maybe not. A recognition that in many ways life is not just black and white. It is not just yes or no one thing or the other, very often, in all sorts of ways, it is uncertain. 
It is ambiguous. There are shades of grey. It's in between yes and no. I work as a volunteer practitioner for an organization called Place for Hope, which is a Christian organization dedicated to working with faith groups as they uh, work through conflict situations. And one of the things that we often look for in working with conflict is a willingness to move from either or to both and. Because in conflict situations, conflict will escalate if it's either or. I'm right and you're wrong. Or you're right and I'm wrong. And, and if that is the level that it's at, it will escalate. One of the ways of de-escalating conflict is to try and shift that to both and. There are some things that you might be right about, <laughs> and there are some things that I might be right about. It's ambiguous. It's not cut and dried. And when that shift occurs, then it opens up as I'm sure you can understand, a place for, for mediation and even for healing. Another illustration would be the, the book that I came across recently, um, and a reference to it anyway. It's a novel called A Paragon. It's by the Irish writer Colin McCann. And it's a novel, but it's based on the true story, and it's based on the story of two fathers, one Palestinian and one Israeli. And they both lost young children in the conflict between Israel and Palestine. Their children were killed. And the, the book is about the story of their relationship, these two fathers that have experienced the same devastating grief on opposite sides of a conflict. And one of the characters in the book says this. He says, Rumi, the poet, the Sufi, said something that I will never forget. He said this, Beyond right and wrong, there is a field. I'll meet you there. We were right and we were wrong and we met in a field. We realized that we wanted to kill each other in order to achieve the same thing, peace and security. How crazy is that? In thinking about this subject, the silence of God, it helps me to move beyond a yes or no view of the world, a binary view of the world, to something more nuanced, to something more ambiguous. Because the issue is this, that the more that we cling to certainty, the more difficult the silence of God will be. Now, I should have given a health warning, shouldn't I? <laughs> you know, like those things on the telly, I'm just warning that this, uh, this report contains flashing images. This is not easy, is it? But um, I want to say that faith, of course, plays an enormous part in this. And the interesting thing is, when you come to think about this a little bit, you, you discover that 
many of the people who are most holy, people of strong faith, people that we would think of as having a very close walk with God, are often the ones that speak most about the silence of God. The um, classic Christian literature talks about this in terms of the dark night of the soul. And from medieval Christian mystics like St. John of the Cross and the author of The Cloud of Unknowing, to the modern day, to somebody that you will all have heard of, Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Do you know that Mother Teresa of Calcutta struggled with the silence of God in the midst of what she was doing, saving destitute and dying on the streets of Calcutta? She struggled with the silence of God right up to the point where she died in 1997. So there seems to be this connection between those of deep faith and an experience of God's silence, even God's absence. And if we look at the Bible itself and its record of God speaking, one of the things that we need to be aware of is the span that the Scriptures are addressing, and that's probably between two and 4,000 years, that span. So when you pick up the Bible, this is, this is a book that contains about four millennium's worth of the record of God's people. So when you think about that, one of the things it means is, is to understand that actually God did not speak every day or even every decade, even in terms of the Scriptures. And there are, there are parts of the Scriptures that quite explicitly acknowledge that. For example, the story that many of you will know very well, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, it's the story of, of the boy Samuel in the temple, and he's, he's gone there, he's been dedicated by his mother to be raised by the priest Eli in the temple, and the, God starts to speak to him. But the, the story in 1 Samuel chapter 3 is prefaced by this, it says, in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. They didn't hear God very much. And Pete Gregg, when he, in writing this book, as I say, he's, he's, he's using this idea of Holy Saturday. He's pointing to Holy Saturday as um, a way of, of, of structuring what he wants to say about the silence of God. And this is what he says about it. This is the opening paragraph of this, this chapter. He says, no one really talks about Holy Saturday, yet if we stop and think about it, it's where most of us live most of our lives. That's quite a strong statement, isn't it? It's where most of us live most of our lives. Holy Saturday is the no-man's land between questions and answers, prayers uttered and miracles to come. It's where we wait with a peculiar mixture of faith and despair whenever God is silent or life doesn't make sense. That's what... Um, he has to, to say about that. And this is uh, enduring. 
silence. This is awkward. There's no response. It is uncomfortable. It is unnerving. We ask for help and there's nothing. No explanation, no revelation, no insight. Just silence. And that's the setting, actually, of the biblical book of Job in the Old Testament. Job, whose prosperity was destroyed, whose family has been killed, whose home is taken away. Job, who is left to sit on the rubbish heap and scratch his sores with a piece of broken pottery. I bet there are quite a few refugees in our world who've got to identify with that, aren't there? And when he comes to God with his questions, nothing. Well, actually that's not quite true, is it? Because if you know the book of Job, you'll know that what happens is his, his friends turn up, so-called friends. Job's comforters, and they just urge him. They say, well, look, Job, you know, obviously you've sinned. I mean, otherwise God wouldn't be treating you like this. Just confess your sins and be done with it. And Job says, no. I'm innocent. And I want an answer from God. And we know, actually, from the prologue to the book of Job, that that's true. It's not Job's sin that has put him where he is. But God is silent. Goodness, deep breath. <laughs> Shall we, let's move to something a little bit more positive. <laughs> because my second um, heading, in a sense, from enduring uh, the silence is to embracing the silence. Silence is by its very nature ambiguous. It can be positive and it can be negative. If you're alone in a room with somebody that you don't know, you have little in common with, you don't trust, Silence is going to be awkward, isn't it? You ever got into the lift with somebody? You know, and you think, oh no. I hope they get out the next floor. And it can be awkward. And yet there are circumstances in life, aren't there, where silence is quite comfortable, even in the presence of others. In... Um, March 2017, after a particularly bruising period of interim ministry, I took myself off to a place in Devon that was offering a, a week-long silent retreat. I don't know if any of you have done this. Some of you will have done, I guess. And I, I'd never done it before. And I was a bit apprehensive about it. I wasn't quite sure how I'd react to it. And there were a dozen or so other participants and there was a kind of clear structure to the day. They started off with a, uh, well it started with prayers actually in the little chapel and then it finished with prayers every day but in the morning there was almost always some kind of input from the person who was leading it and then the afternoons we were free to do what you liked and the only rule was that there was no talking. No talking at mealtimes, no talking when you were with other people, no talking when you bumped into them in the corridor, and we were even encouraged not to break the silence by contacting uh, loved ones away back home again. 
And I have to say it took me a few days to adjust, to learn not to try and strike up a conversation when you bump to some, into somebody in the corridor, to learn how at breakfast, because all the meals were taken communally, how if the milk was up the other end of the table, you communicated that you would like some milk for your cereal without actually saying anything. But I found as the days went past that the blessings of silence began to reveal themselves. When you choose silence in this more comfortable way, then there's a great release there. It's a release of the need to explain or to justify or to say anything actually about yourself. And that's quite a profound relief. I just am in the presence of other people. And you begin to stop worrying about what they'll think of you. <laughs> I won't say you get to the end of that process, but if you're not going to talk to them, they don't know anything about you, I mean, what's the point of worrying what they think about you? And, and you begin to let go of that. And I remember one, on one occasion over that week, I remember going out for a walk in the Devon countryside in, in March, which was lovely actually. I mean, the daffodils were out and the spring flowers and it was a warm and sunny day. And I, I sat and uh, walked through this little bit of woodland and I, for about half an hour, I watched this bumblebee. I don't know anything about bumblebees, but this bumblebee was kind of buzzing around, you know, and it was quite near the, um, the forest floor. And every so often it seemed to sort of go down into a little bit of leaf mold. I have no idea what it was doing. And then it would come up again and it would buzz around. And I, I must have spent 30 minutes watching it. And one of the things that you begin to let go of in the silence is the illusion that the world needs me. Because it doesn't. <laughs> And in some ways, that's an enormous relief, isn't it? The bumblebee will carry on, whether I watch it or not. All the people back in the retreat center will get on with their lives, whether I speak to them or not. The ending of the book of Job is very interesting because after nearly 40 chapters of God's silence, God finally does speak. And when he speaks, he asks Job this question. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? If you know so much, Job, tell me about it. What does that mean? Well, <laughs> there's ambiguity in it, isn't there? <laughs> but one of the things I think it means is, Job, do you know what? The world doesn't need you. The world can carry on without you. And when God speaks in the book of Job, Job's questions are not so much resolved, he doesn't so much get answers, 
the questions dissolve, they disappear. And I think they disappear into a more comfortable silence. Because God did make the world. And God is able to sustain it. Don't need me to do that. But God can do it. And God has spoken a word in Jesus that has never been unspoken and remains. Silence moves from being awkward to being comfortable when you're in the presence of somebody that you trust. You may still suffer. You may not get the answers that you long for. The silence may be prolonged. But if there's another in that silence whom you trust, it becomes, if not comfortable, at least tolerable. At least that's somewhere I can live. Terry Waite, many of you will know the story of Terry Waite. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury's special representative in the Middle East in the 1980s, and he was a frequent visit, visitor to the Middle East backwards and forwards. And in 1987, he himself was kidnapped by one of the armed groups in Beirut. And for the next five years, he was held prisoner. For four years, he was in solitary confinement always chained, often beaten, sometimes subject to mock execution on his own for four years. When he, when he was released and he came to write an account of the, the time, he called the book, what do you think he called it? He called it Taken on Trust. Isn't that remarkable? That he should write an account of that time and give it that title, Taken on Trust. You see, I think that everybody actually has faith in something. I think it's a mistake for Christians to uh, accept the argument that, you know, we believe something and they don't. That's not true. We believe something and they do, but the question is, what is it? And people put their faith in all sorts of things. They put it in themselves, they put it in their bank balance or their education or their career, and sometimes people put their faith in God. And if you believe in yourself, in an ultimate way, I mean, I don't mean, you know, you don't have confidence in yourself, I mean more than that, if you believe that you are the reason for existence, then silence and suffering is really hard. Because the truth is that the world doesn't need you. And largely will disregard you. If you believe in your bank balance, well, that won't last, will it? <laughs> or your education, or your achievements, or your career, those things will all come to an end. So the question is, 
is the thing that we believe in, is it able to sustain us when we need it most in the times of silence? And putting your faith in an invisible God, a God who sometimes is silent and even is absent, is labelled by many people as completely daft, isn't it? (laughs) And I think, as I've said, we need to acknowledge that actually faith implies ambiguity. Let me put it like this. If life is a journey of two friends, and one of them believes in God and the other believes in something else, believes, I don't know, in, in their own capabilities or their own gifts or something like that, And they go through life together and they experience the same things. They experience the the loss and tragedy of life. They experience the joy and the, the celebration that life offers. So they experience the same things, these two friends. But they interpret them differently. They react in different ways. Because the one who has faith in God experiences all of those things in terms of the providence of God. And the one who believes in himself or whatever it is, that for them it's just a series of random happenings that really have no ultimate meaning. And it's only when they get to the end of the journey that they're going to know. And that's faith. <laughs> Jim Elliot, in the 1950s, was a missionary to remote indigenous people in in Ecuador, people who had a a fearsome uh, reputation for violence towards outsiders. And when he and his small group of Christian folk first made contact with this remote tribe, they were received in a very friendly kind of way and welcomed. And so they were encouraged by that and they, they continued on in their contact. But on the 8th of January in 1956, they were attacked and he and four of his companions were killed. And he was 29 years old. And he'd previously written in his journal these words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And that is a a trust that goes beyond reason. A trust that enables confidence in God even when the silence continues.